Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Reset Salon Podcast. And this is Ed McGuire with uh, Julie Albright and Brian Hayashi. And today's theme is Future Proofing You Post-Pandemic. This builds on some, some of the themes that we've been exploring recently, uh, notably with Brian Solis, about how what are some solutions that... Uh, that are ahead of us. How do we build a better future going forward? I think that's, you know, now now that I think there's there's been a lot more clarity, we're we're now looking at, at how we can have, make the world uh, better, how we can create opportunities, how we can propagate optimism in 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 our own lives and around us. And uh, our guest this podcast is. Uh, Jay Samet, who is uh, a digital media expert who's uh, launched and grown and sold startups in Fortune 500 companies. He was a very uh, high-level exec and entrepreneur at at many well-known firms. He has partnered with and worked with a a list of entrepreneurs that are are household names, Richard Branson, Steve Jobs, uh, many others. Uh, And he's got a new book that coincidentally happens to fit the theme of, of the title. It's, um, it's called Future Proofing You, 12 Truths for Creating Opportunity, Maximizing Wealth, and Controlling Your Destiny in an Uncertain World. So uh, we're going to dive into that. But first, I'd like to hand it over to Julie for some, for some opening comments. Hey, thanks, Ed. I spent a lot of time as a kid thinking about the future. I can recall three strands which sort of shaped my thinking about it. One, I read a ton of science fiction. By the time I graduated junior high school, I'd read every Ray Bradbury book ever written, which creates imagined futures for us to consider, be it life on Mars, I remember Ray Bradbury's yellow-eyed settlers on Mars in the Martian Chronicles, to the sort of post-apocalyptic cityscapes with huge video screens in the downtown area, flying cars, and the video calls of Blade Runner. All technologies which have been developed since or are emerging. And of course, the cyberpunk of the 80s. William Gibson's Neuromancer and writers like Bruce Sterling and Neil Stevenson. Many of the early internet developers were in fact inspired by these books, books like Snow Crash, which talks about the intersection of brain functioning, a virus, and computer code. Fodder, perhaps, for Elon Musk's Neuralink? A second thread which taught me to think about the future was a penchant for playing chess. One aspect of chess is thinking ahead about your moves and about the moves of your opponent. Certainly skills which have come in handy for me in life. If your opponent does this, you respond with that. It's the kind of thinking that works well on both the board and in the boardroom now. The last thread I would call science fiction by proxy. I remember playing with my little girlfriend Laura as a kid and at the strike of, oh, I don't know, three or four o'clock every day, no matter what we were doing, in the midst of a chess game, talking, eating, playing outside, 
she'd abruptly excuse herself and run to her room to watch her favorite show, Star Trek. Now as an adult, she laments being slightly obsessed with the show, but think about all the inspiration for engineers and developers and others that it lent from handheld communicators to beaming me up in a teleporter to traveling to galaxies far, far away that Star Trek provided. I myself always loved the Twilight Zone. It too looked to the future. I remember a particularly striking episode called The Long Morrow. Released in 1964, its future was 1987. The episode focused on a man by the name of Douglas Stansfield, a 31-year-old astronaut who was to spend the next 40 years in suspended animation to complete his journey. He was in love with a 26-year-old nurse named Sandra. By the time he came back, he'd be the same age, and she would have been an older woman in her 60s by then, which would have caused a wide age gap between them by the time he returned. The story goes that 40 years later, he returns to Earth, a long-forgotten pioneer. The discoveries he made on his mission were independently achieved earlier by technology developed after his departure. His love, Sandra, was there waiting for him, still 26 and lovely. She had put herself in suspended animation during Stansfield's mission. Stansfield, however, had voluntarily disabled his suspended animation system six months into his journey after a communications failure on the ship. He was now an older man of 70. He had endured 40 years of inconceivable loneliness in the hopes of being with Sandra when he returned. When he lays his eyes on her, she still young and beautiful, heartbroken, he tells her to go on with life without him. Another episode that struck me was called Where Is Everybody? It featured a man in a flight suit in a town where the residents had all disappeared. He ran from place to place, his desperation growing, running into a diner, seeing a coffee pot still steaming away on a hot plate. He was desperately searching for another human being so he wasn't the last man standing on Earth. These shows, and science fiction more broadly, explore the impacts of technology on our lives, and they provide us with imagined futures as we think about the human condition for good and ill. Things like love, human connection versus loneliness, community versus alienation, purpose, meaning, while exploring the vices or deadly sins of greed, gluttony, envy, lust, and others. Science fiction allows us to imagine futures and perhaps helps to drive us toward more ethical technological development and toward imagination itself as we try to imagine our own futures and the future of society and those around us. Kevin Kelly, 
the co-founder of Wired Magazine back in the 90s, recently talked about future thinking in a podcast he did. And he said basically that good founders take the here and now view, but great founders take what he referred to as the eternal view, an idea that I talked about before in an earlier podcast. This allows them, the eternal view that is, to see the bigger picture, things like civilizational scale, infrastructural necessities, stewardship, and feeding the network. So Kelly is advocating moving from here and now thinking toward future-oriented thinking. So how can we apply that kind of future thinking, not only to our startup or business ventures, but to our own personal lives as well? Here's the thing though, and I'll close with this idea. There are futures that we can imagine, paths forward for ourselves, I would say, Yet I can also say for certain that in my life anyway, some of the most wonderful things which have happened to me, which happened to us, in fact, are the unimagined, the unimaginable. I met the CTO of Chevron, for example, at graduation at USC a few years ago. He asked me to write a grant with him, and I wrote one and a half out of the four sections, and it was on the smart grid, and energy consumption and changing behaviors around green and sustainability. It was for the Department of Energy. Well, surprise, we won it. It was $121 million and it changed the trajectory of my career and life. Now that's something I never in a million years would either have imagined or planned. So I guess the idea I want to leave you with is that When we think about futures, plans are good, but maybe we can take a page too from my little girlfriend's favorite show, Star Trek, the show that started most episodes with space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. So when you think of your own futures, go boldly, explore strange new worlds, new lives, new civilizations. In other words, leave some room open for kismet and those small everyday miracles in life, which could both open doors and lead to new wonderful, unexpected paths in life toward your future, yet unimagined and yet to be written. And with that, I'm tossing it to Brian. I love the idea of science fiction helping us to imagine new futures and what we might need to do to get there. Too often, we watch these shows on streaming television that present these apocalyptic visions of what the future might bring. These visions almost seem ripped from today's headlines, so as a result, when we look at the news, it seems to be the future is happening no matter what we, have, we can do in the meantime. And because of this, convincing people that we can do something other than wait for this 
bad, awful future to arrive seems hopeless. Even worse, it feels like some people can't wait. We have people calling for the end of computing because they can't imagine any possible use for technology other than enriching a few tech bros at the expense of the rest of the planet. I think there are futures we can imagine, and I think we don't have to settle for the ones that haunt us after we see them on TV. I think you're right. We can leave some room for the people that we haven't yet met. I'm really excited to listen to Jay and, and what he has to say about future-proofing ourselves, because I think that steps like this might end up being the keys that we need to give ourselves the room to wait, to listen, and to consider other views than the worst possible case. Thanks. It's great when you think about the uh, uh, the science fiction and the you know visions of the future. I think it was William Gibson who said the future is here; it's just not evenly distributed yet. And the uh, in particular, going back to uh, some of Julie's comments on on science fiction, I think it was the, the, the shows that we all grew up with, you know, helped spark our imaginations. Um, I do think there's one caveat. You definitely do not want to be a, one of those crew members wearing the red shirt when you go down to the planet, because that, uh, uh, that, that often resulted in, um, uh, is kind of unexpected, uh, unexpected twists and turns. But, um, yeah, as we, as we move forward, I think it, it looking at, uh, you know, on both serendipity and, and, and planned futures. Um, one of the things I like to, you know, I like to think about is, is that, that, you know, you can do a lot of, uh, a lot of forecasting purely with data that could, is incredibly powerful and is around us. Juliet earlier mentioned, um, uh, Chevron has made me think of, of energy and, and my friend, Tony Seba, who had written the book, um, clean disruption of energy and transportation. And when I first met him about seven years ago, he had just published his book, but the work that he had done was based purely on cost curves and projecting forward the uh, the cost of, of electric vehicles going forward based on you know the corollaries of Moore's law, the declining production costs and uh, capacity for for energy storage and uh, and then economies of scale that would lead to ultimately uh, electric vehicles and solar being the cheapest forms of of transportation and and energy uh, without any sort of you know, government intervention uh, intervention or subsidies at all. And what's been amazing about you know his work is that the you know the cost of new electric vehicles has almost perfectly tracked his forecasts and and Ray Kurzweil did a lot of work on um, on on Moore's law of just forecasting that these you know there are these the exponential trends that that accompany you know semiconductors I think it was Kumi's law is another one um, the they they persist regardless of economic cycle and what that well, the, I, I think the, the first derivative lesson of that is that one can always find opportunities regardless of an economic cycle or where you, where you come out in, in life. And, uh, um, and, and that kind of brings us to, to our guest today, uh, Jay Samet, who uh, has a really interesting and storied career. And um, you're talking about uh, you know, getting an unexpected start in, in, during a recession. But Jay has seen and uh, seen companies grow from you know, kind of from seed to, uh, you know, to almost world domination and uh, has, you know, has mentored a lot of people and has done a lot of work on the 
coming up with a, a framework and, and 12 principles uh, that can help those of us who are looking for direction and, and looking for guidance and particularly the younger, the younger generation, uh, a way forward to imagine and realize a better future. So um, with that, I, I'd actually, just, I'd like to just hand it over to Jay and, and ask, kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what, what do you, what do you think of when we talk about future proofing for the post-pandemic? So I spent a lot of years when I wrote the book, Disrupt You, telling everybody that whether by choice or circumstance, every career gets disrupted. I don't have to convince anybody of that anymore. I think the pandemic kind of put that nail in permanently. So if we live in a dynamic world, if the things we learned in school won't serve us through our career, there's two ways that you can look at this incredible, faster than Darwinian rate of change. One is you can't cope and you're roadkill. And when I looked at what happened in our nation's capital in January, what I saw was thousands of people that feel left out, left behind. And the bottom 140 million Americans are fighting over 1% of leftovers. But at the same time, that same pandemic, the 150 wealthiest in the US doubled their net worth. We still have a self-made billionaire being made every 48 hours. So what are these people doing differently? So that was the genesis of Future Proof and You, looking at the trends, looking what you now have, that you're alive at a moment that the infrastructure to reach 7 billion people is just one click away. So to prove my hypothesis that anyone can do this, I took a young man who grew up on welfare, who was homeless, who was couch surfing, a millennial, mentored him one day a week for a year, gave him no capital, introduced him to no one, didn't tell him what business to start, and he had to start a business that required zero capital. And he went from broke to self-made billionaire. But when we talk about the future parts of it, here's some of the advantages, some of the 12 truths. One that should be obvious to everybody now is remote workers. So for most of mankind, if you were starting a business, you didn't get to hire the best people. You get to hire the best people that are within 10 or 20 miles of you. Now, when nationwide insurance can suddenly move everybody home and Google can move everybody home, you have access to the best people in the world. But conversely, the big trend, you no longer have to live in a big urban center for the high paying job. You don't have to make six figures at Apple and live in a small little you know, apartment with three roommates in, in, in Cupertino. More importantly, Today's digital nomads don't have to live in any one place. If you're not having to go to that place to work, you don't have to wait till you're 65 to see the world and explore it. You can work one month in Hawaii, the next in Thailand, you go running with the bulls in Spain. You can have a different work-life balance than has ever existed before. And I write all the tools and all the free software to keep you connected and do all that. One of the other big changes and actually the conclusion of the book. I'm an ardent capitalist. I've created billion dollar companies. I've run multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, but I can tell you, capitalism as we know it is broken. You cannot have endless growth on a finite planet. To Julie's point, that's one of the threads in all science fiction that leads to our destruction. So if we know that this is inevitable, 
you have to move towards sustainable capitalism. You have to take in the true cost of everything we make, of everything that we do. And I start that chapter with a really brilliant ad campaign by Patagonia almost a decade ago. It was on Black Friday, the busiest sale day of the year. They took out a full page ad in the New York Times that had a picture of their most popular coat. And it said, do not buy this jacket. And it went on to explain, if you have a jacket, don't buy another one, even though they try to make it ethically sourced and all that. There's tons of waste, tons of water, tons of environmental impact. If you have a broken jacket, bring it in and we'll fix it. But we'd rather sell less things, make less money, and leave a planet that's livable. So fast forward to today, Walmart, the biggest retailer, realized that after employees, their second biggest cost was energy. So they put a lot of thought and process. They got rid of fluorescent lights, put in LEDs, save over $100 million a year, not because it's good for the environment, but because it was good for the bottom line. And when they do that, it forces their competition target to literally have a target on their back. So then target responds by being the largest installation of solar panels. And you can go across industry after industry. So if you're doing a business, if you're looking to start a business, you can either wait for the inevitable regulations that will force change, or you can get ahead of it so that those regulations will wipe out your competition and you'll be still standing. I'm chairman of a company, Green, Greenfield Robotics, that makes robots to deal with weeds on broad acre crops instead of pesticides. I don't know who the idiot was that thought 100 years ago the best way to grow food was put enough poison to kill everything else, but it probably won't kill us. Um, they got that wrong. So these little robots that go up and down rows of corn and milo, whatever, they just take care of the weeds. Like think of goats that don't eat the crops, but eat the bad stuff. Farmers make more money. We get healthy food. And you don't have to till the soil for weeds. The single largest cost of carbon and greenhouse gases is farming. So it sequesters more car carbon than removing all the cars on planet. So why wouldn't you wanna build a business that does that when there's so many issues that we can face? So with this young man, he didn't know how to get started. And so the 12 truths literally walk anybody through the process. This isn't rocket science. This isn't far-fetched up. The first one, is something you've all heard before. You have to start with a growth mindset. You have to start looking at all of our problems as basically opportunities in disguise. A successful entrepreneur doesn't sell things, they solve things. And when you can solve for millions, that's how you make millions. When you solve for billions, you change the world. You know, And that's the exciting part of this. So science fiction isn't written by others, our futures are actually written by us. Every product you have, every product you buy, everything you read, every movie you've been to was created by a stubborn person. I'm a firm believer that you only need two things to be successful, insight and perseverance. I wrote the book to teach people how to find insight, how to see the voids that nobody's using. And that's the easiest one that people miss. If you go into any field where there's competition, they've been there already. People think I'm competitive. I'm the opposite of competitive. I know on any given day, there's somebody smarter than me, better looking than me, better connect, just plain all better. But if I'm the only person doing it, 
by definition, I'm the best in the world. So this young man, he wanted to do social media. That's what he knew as, a, as, as his generation. But there's 40 million people out there that want to do social media. There are a dime a dozen. So I said, look at what's new. Look at something that's a new field that everybody's talking about, the zeitgeist, and claim that your agency is the world's best agency at that one thing. And he literally named his company the world's best agency. And he got his first client. And in Harvard MBA speak, that then made him have a case study. The second he had a case study, the same services that he was charging $200 a month for, he could now get $30,000 a month for and have clients lined up. And the reason it's future-proof is after he worked incredibly hard for a year, he's willing to work harder than most people will, so he can live better than most people can. But as he got to the end of the marathon, he knew it was going to take a year off. But he could afford to take the year off, not because he had amassed a bunch of money, but because he knew he was truly future-proof. He could go anywhere at any time, regardless of economic conditions, regardless of changes, and be successful. So. To me, when I look at the problems that we have in our society, you cannot have democracy without a middle class. The pandemic eviscerated the middle class in many, many countries, including the US, where we now have one out of four children in poverty. But we're not teaching people how to be successful. We raised them to be factory workers. We gave them jobs that give them enough to show up but not enough to care. So, Unless you just want to pay bills until you die, there is another path. And so that's why I write these books. And that's why uh, I appreciate the time to, to talk to you today. Jay, how, I mean, you've got familiarity with robotics and there's a lot of concern among people that, you know, may, may have, that, that have, uh, you know, obviously grounded fears, but, but also, you know, maybe misconceptions about, the impact that automation may have on, on, on jobs, on traditional oh, middle class. I'll give you the impact. Yeah. 50% of all jobs, half of all jobs will disappear this decade. Um, I was vice chairman of Deloitte. Company does $45 billion a year. The uh, reason I was brought in at the top was let's go through it. Most accounting will be replaced by software. Most of what lawyers do will be replaced by software. Would you like to have a doctor look at your MRI or an AI system that's seen every MRI, okay? Um, so it's not just the truck driver losing a job to automation, not just the factory worker. It is half of all jobs. So is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? Well, a hundred years ago, irrigation and the tractor took half the people from the farms to the city, which meant Half the farms lost their jobs. Today, agriculture employs less than 2% of our population and we export food. So that's a massive amount of jobs that disappeared. But we found other things to do. I, I've been, you know, I've had the major automakers as, as clients. I've seen the assembly line of the 21st century that still has people. And it's really no different than Charlie Chaplin. I don't think any human being wants to do repetitive motion for 40 years of their only time on this planet. So if it can free us from doing the mundane, if we have the tools to allow us to do and solve greater problems, technology opens up new doors at the same time it closes others. Now, as you said, the future is not evenly distributed, 
But here's why I take challenge with that. The internet has now reached enough of mankind that everyone has access to this knowledge. All of humanity's knowledge is a few clicks away. You could spend your day watching, you know, a hamster eat a mini taco or a cat play the piano, or you could better yourself. One of my heroes was, was uh, uh, Car Andrew Carnegie, who went to the public libraries and little orphan immigrant and became one of the wealthiest men in the history of mankind. And when he got that wealth, he offered any city that would give him a building, he'd turn it into a library and fill it with books. And he built like 1600 libraries so that people could better themselves. And that's my mission. That's my purpose. That's how I'm paying it forward. Because if I can help people solve problems, who do you think they're solving them for? All of us. Yeah, it, it seems that the uh, there really needs to be a, uh, a rethinking of how we educate uh, kids and uh, um, well, and and also how people that you know looking forward. I mean, the, this the concept of being able to self educate and re re educate yourself is is so critical, right? I I I I, I recall seeing you know the statistics that you know the average person will have seven to 10 careers in their lives. And the need for constant reinvention is, is critical. But a, a lot of the, again, these sort of entrenched systems or method, methodologies of, of education yeah. are, you know, are, are, you know, they're, they're established and there's, there's a lot of inertia there. I mean, large organizations tend to, well, you know, tend to have a, they tend to resist change. No, no creature on earth had more inertia than the dinosaur. <laughs> um, and, and you got to remember, you know, the stone age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Okay. The oil age is going to run out because solar turns out to be better. All these things turn out to be better and easier. And one of the concepts that is one of my 12 truths in future proofing you is every business is a high tech startup, restaurant, shoes, anything. Because if you think about that's the first thing you look at when you wake up is your phone. The last thing you kiss when you go to bed. We live in a digital world, no matter where you are on the planet. So why wouldn't you build your business there? Why not take advantage of that data and interactivity? And you don't have to be an engineer. Everybody listening to this podcast has written at least as much code as Steve Jobs, who built the first trillion dollar company. Steve couldn't program anything. He didn't have to. You can hire that. And some of the other fallacies that hold people back, people with higher IQs don't end up wealthier. People with four-year degrees no longer end up wealthier. And we have a generation now with massive amounts of debt that's serving them no purpose. Uh, so what is the difference? The only academic thing that can look to the future to see if someone's going to be successful is the marshmallow test. Are you familiar with the marshmallow test? So for those that aren't, it's the most brilliant thing ever. They've been doing now almost uh, half a century. They get a little three-year-old and they sit him in a white room with nothing to distract. And they put a marshmallow in front of the kid. And they said, um, I'm gonna have to go do something. If you don't eat the marshmallow, by the time I come back, I will give you two. And those that know how to delay gratification end up exceeding in life, more than matching an SAT score, more than an Ivy League degree. It's the most a profound thing. So what is the lesson that we can learn from a three-year-old? Delay gratification. Start working on your future now. 
you always have time to do something to, to entertain yourself and solve for others because gratitude is where you get joy from the experience. I didn't expect the thousands of emails I get from readers around the world that their lives have changed, but it propels me to work harder for those that I haven't reached. And, and why wouldn't you want to make the world a little bit better because of your time here? So, yeah, it's uh, the, the whole concept of a future, you know, future time orientation is, is so critical to, uh, to success. And it, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be uh, goals. It can be a mission too. That's yeah, a key ahead. thing. Yeah. I talk about that you need perseverance, but one of my 12 truths is turning perseverance into passion. Passion will get you over those hurdles. Passion will give you purpose. There's a reason why one out of three Fortune 500 companies was created by an immigrant or a first generation. When, when you see an immigrant doing a menial job, sweeping a floor, working at a convenience store, whatever it might be, that's not their identity. They're already on a mission to achieve something. It happened when they made that bold step to go boldly where nobody else in their family had before and leave their country and go. Vin was an immigrant. He knew nobody in this country. Uh, and that propels them. That gives a purpose to each task. So when they stumble, when they fail, they realize that they're still on that course. Failing is such an intrinsic part of the process, yet we don't teach that in school. What we teach is this mythology of the self-made man or self-made woman, that somehow you can make it on your own. Um, and it's funny, we always call that the Horatio Alger thing, but if anybody ever read the story, all that Horatio Alger did was marry the boss's daughter, okay? Um, great way to get to the top, uh, but there's only so many daughters. But when I ran rock labels, I was part of creating that mythology. When, when you have 100,000 screaming fans in a stadium and seeing that one person on the stage singing from their heart to yours, you see that person made it on their own and you feel that connection. What you don't see is the hundreds of writers, producers, musicians, tour managers, stylists, wardrobe, lawyers that made that moment possible. So you're going to need mentors. One of my 12 truths is don't fly solo. If you agree that you want to have all those careers that you mentioned, you're going to need different mentors for each stage of your life. Everyone that you know that got there, got there on the shoulders of somebody else. Isaac Newton said the only reason he achieved what he did was he was standing on the shoulders of giants, of those that came before him. Oprah Winfrey had Barbara Walters. Bill Gates had Warren Buffett. I mean, you sell and become a billionaire at 30, you need some help figuring out. So I teach people how to get those mentors how there are people who want you to succeed and the joys that come with mentoring others. You know, it's the old expression. If you, you don't, can't find somebody with a smile, give them yours. And it's really just changes your whole world from this dog eat dog where we fight over the same scraps to a world where you're actually creating most money. Most billionaires created the wealth. They didn't get it from somebody else. And that's a tough concept for people to grasp. Yeah, it's not a it's not a zero sum uh, dynamic. Exactly. Most of the world, I mean, abundance is is very different, and it it is uh, it is it does become win win. And and you hit on a a topic uh, or or a point that I think is really important. And uh, 
um, that Julie's talked about this before as well, is the concept of the network effects of giving. And would love to get your, you know, your thoughts on, on, I think you alluded to it with the importance of mentoring, but also the idea that as you identify value opportunities, that that does, you know, you are giving something to others. And then that in itself builds, you know, builds on itself and, and can result in, 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 you know, in great works. I'll tell you one of the surprises that you hit on that I couldn't have imagined going into it, but on the backside, was just an eye opener. Big problems need big ideas. And when you come up with a big idea, it is like a flame to the greatest moths on this planet. So when I sold my first company in the 90s, I saw the Mark Andreessen who just put the interface on, on the internet. I saw that the web could suddenly be equal access to knowledge, equal access to education, no more Brown versus the Board of Education, no separate but equal. And I started writing about this. Make a long story short, got a call from the president of the United States. Could I make this happen? And I said, okay. And he said, well, there's not a penny in taxpayer money available. So figure out. And in 18 months, we wired every school in the country with no taxpayer dollar. What was interesting about is the people that volunteered, the people that showed up were people that just shared the thing. And when we had the photo op with the White House, I have my picture taken, you know, with the president of the United States. And a month later, you get the signed thing to frame and put up on your wall forever. And I was bummed. It wasn't a two shot. It was a three shot. It was me and some other volunteer that was working on it. And I always had on my wall. It was a guy who was out of work looking for his next thing to work on. He loved the idea. And then years later, you go by and people go, oh, you're friends with Eric Schmidt. You know, all the people that worked in this, you know, my first startup was the idea of having a social network, you know. 10 years before, before Facebook. Mark Cuban did the audio part of it. I can, I can drop more names of who worked on that because the world is so interconnected that you can get to work with all the greats because here's the thing, you are who's going to make them great, right? I got to work with all these people before they became household names. And that's why I, was, I had the grounding to know that they put on their shoes one at a time. Many of them are not brighter than the average bear, but they see the world different. And you can teach that. And my goal with Vin is now I don't have to traverse the world explaining this to people. He's the living proof and he can do that. And you, you know, light a fire. And I've now get I focus my time on working with governments to create policy that encourages entrepreneurship as opposed to take it away. There's one country on earth, I won't, I won't out them because I don't know where the audience is, that if you want to invest in a startup, there's a 30% tax on the capital before it goes to the startup. So let's take the riskiest investment and take away the money so we don't create new jobs and don't change the status quo because those that are in power in that particular nation, believe that change can be blocked by borders, right? Money flows through freely, talent, ideas, and it's the greatest time in the history of mankind to try to impart global change. And we need it. 
Before we wrap up, I want to circle back to one very important thread that that uh, <clears throat> is is kind of courses through your uh, through your comments, and that's the you know the the role of creativity and imagination, and uh, and how that also relates to the arts. And I just wanted to uh, I, I I thought it would be great to to have you share a little bit about the uh, your own uh, special project that you uh, undertook during this pandemic of all all the people that we've talked to um, that have made the you know made the most out of out of the time uh, being kind of sequestered at home. Uh, you got a great story, and would love to just have you share a little bit of that. Yes, yeah, so. I didn't think we'd be as incompetent as a country as we turned out to be. I thought we'd be locked in for 30 days, 90, maybe 100 days tops. You know, I, I, I did, you know, 364 days of sequestration. But if you weren't afflicted with the disease, there has to be a silver lining. That's the way I look at life. I have that growth mindset. So I wanted to share that with people. And what occurred to me is I spend my life flying around. I spent January 2020 in uh, four continents and 12 countries, my typical living on an airplane. And now for the first time in my life, I'm not running around. I have the gift of time. What could I do with this time? And how could I show people the product of that time? So privately, I've always painted and created art. I've never showed it in the business world. It's not part of something that I was doing professionally, but I committed to painting a painting every day and putting it up. I paint in watercolors. It's my version of meditation. And I painted what I was feeling. I painted the loss that we were suffering. I painted the things we were missing. I painted, you know, the, the loneliness, all of the feelings that as a collective society, we all shared at this moment. And then something miraculous happened when you put out an idea. I heard from art galleries. I heard from art agents. Fast forward, I had a solo show in New York, which I didn't get to attend of my art. I got a bunch of commissioned works. Um, when you sell a piece of art, something I never knew, they tell you the name of the person that bought it. So when you see these famous names, I have to you know, put myself back in reality. I go, they must have had an empty space in their, in their bathroom, right? That's the only way I can figure it out. Um, but I'm now a professional artist. And, you know, that's what happens. Just put yourself out there. And I, I, it was a lesson of joy. Um, so thanks for letting me share that. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful story, and I, I bet uh, next step is to 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 put it into non fungible tokens and and, uh, and auction. Well, well I'm I'm doing that when we get to the spatial reality stage. I, I already have have my installation project. I, I think it's uh, it's what ten uh, year old Jay would have loved to have gone to and experienced. And I don't think I'm that different than when Julie was that age. Uh, so look at uh, 2023. Central Park, and I'll, I'll try to find a location in LA as well uh, for hey. people to experience a geotagged experience that has a a, a, a a takeaway souvenir, just as if you went to Disneyland, you'd have a souvenir. That's it's uh, not going to be sixty three million dollars though, or whatever that. <laughs> that yeah, that well, hey, it's a good start, right? It's uh, yeah. that's. I mean, that of course, it's who knows how long this is going to last. But yeah, we there's innovation and and value that's being created in ways that. Oh, it's no permanent. I think I think the, the the silliness of people that have no respect for use of money, right, um, will go away. But the idea that we will have and cherish digital memories and, you know, 
how many people kept a scrapbook of all their concert tickets that they went to, or, you know, all the laminates of the conferences they went to and that type of stuff. So having the digital equivalent of those things, I think will be something that will be tasked on. Those are the, uh, again, those are the, the, the mementos of, uh, uh, that will carry us into the future. They'll, they'll be in, they'll be in different and hopefully there'll be lots and lots more great memories uh, that people create going forward. Um, I wanted to wrap up, but thank you very much uh, again. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, we've been talking with, uh, with Jay Samet, who is um, the author of uh, Future Proofing You, 12 Truths for Creating Opportunity, Maximizing Wealth and Controlling Your destiny in an uncertain world and it is it is available uh wherever fine books are sold so a lot of places and uh we do want to uh, also just remind uh anybody listening please uh please uh smash that like button and uh and and share share it with your friends if you like these conversations we always welcome uh feedback and uh questions and and your insights so this is ed mcguire with uh julie albright and brian hayashi and uh we thank you again and we hope to continue the conversation soon thank you thanks so much thank you guys <laughs>